those who know the Bible and the people who do know the Bible. Lord, I thank you for all the great gifts that we have to serve one another and those people around us to grow in our faith in you. that's not a hope in politics or politicians or any 
particular political outcome. Politically speaking, you may uh, hope and vote and work for all kinds of things. And without a doubt, Christians have a place and a responsibility to speak into the realm of politics. But the truth is, a, a lot of that place and a lot of that responsibility is to speak to the limitations of politics. To call people to something much higher, something much greater, something much longer lasting than political agendas and electoral success. King Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, wrote, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. The real problem in this world is the problem of sin, and it's a problem shared universally between Democrats and Republicans, uh, progressives and conservatives, socialists and libertarians. And the answer to the problem of sin is not found in a legislative agenda. The answer to the problem of sin is found in a rugged cross and an empty tomb and the one who sanctified them both. And your job and my job as long as we are in this world is to share that answer as far and wide as we possibly can with as many people as we possibly can. To step out there into the chaos, not with a political agenda, but with the love of God and the good news of Jesus. And as I said last week, the hope we confess is the hope laid out in the gospel. The hope that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he's bringing his reward with him. The hope that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he's going to set up once and for all and forever the kingdom of God in all its fullness. This week's epistle lesson, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So ask, bold toward what end? And within the context of 2 Corinthians chapters 3, 4, and 5, it's obvious that this hope that we have is meant to propel us to make us very bold in sharing the good news of Jesus, sharing the gospel. In other words, your hope, which is fixed in the return of Jesus and the reward he is bringing with him, that hope should naturally result in two life-changing convictions. One, that since you're hoping for something so eternal and so awesome, whatever anyone says to you or whatever anyone does to you in the meantime really shouldn't matter all that much to you. And second, because this hope is so awesome, because it is such good news, we ought to want to share it with everybody. So in other words, since we have this agreed-upon corporate eternal hope in Jesus, we should be very bold to risk persecution and rejection for the sake of Jesus, joyfully enduring whatever comes our way in the course of serving Jesus. And second, we should be very bold to share this hope with everyone around us in the hopes that they will join us in Jesus. So this hope we have in Jesus moves us outward in ministry to others. This is the hope 
that Peter and Paul and John and Timothy and Philip and Stephen and lots of others had a hope that moved them to forsake life and limb and liberty and luxury, all for the privilege of advancing the gospel ministry of Jesus. This was the hope that empowered Polycarp and Perpetua and Celestinian and Cyprian and a whole host of others like them to face the fires and the spears and the wild beasts of Roman persecution rather than renounce their faith in Jesus. It is this hope that moved Christians in, in, in Europe during times of terrible plagues rather than to flee the cities of the masses to stay behind instead and care for the sick and the dying, often dying of the plagues of the Medes. It was this hope that moved Nate Sage and Jim Elliott to risk and actually lose their lives in an effort to bring the gospel of Jesus to the violent, unreached Aousa Indians. And it was this hope that compelled Jim Elliott's widow Elizabeth to go back to that dangerous, primitive tribe after they had killed her husband in order to share the hope of Jesus. The hope you have in Jesus should be infinitely greater than any fear you have in this world. So the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, since we have such a hope, we are very connects the idea of this hope we have in Jesus with our commitment to reach out to the lost. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Confident in the future you have in Jesus, you may freely extend your presence on others. Step boldly into the mess, boldly into the chaos with the love of God under your feet. The good news of Jesus that the Apostle Paul calls in this week's epistle lesson, the gospel of the glory of Christ. I wouldn't yet time to, to unpack that phrase here with you in just one point, but, but I, I really want to say this. As followers of Jesus, it is time we become very bold, sharing not just the gospel, the good news of your my church is so cool, my church is so awesome, you're really awesome, yeah, get out. Not just sharing the good news, uh, uh, the, the gospel of the good news of the blessings of God. Listen, if you'll come to Jesus, God will bless you, he'll take care of you, he'll do all the things. Not just sharing the gospel of the good news of the forgiveness of sins. If you'll believe some things and pray this prayer, you can be forgiven and go to heaven. All those things are truth in all of that. But it is time the followers of Jesus become very bold proclaiming the gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel of the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. One of the hottest trends in our world over the last couple of decades, especially in academia, but really reaching popular culture, is something called the search for the historical Jesus. It's a pseudo-scientific, pseudo-academic exercise where scholars sit around picking out, getting rid of what they assume to be hype and religious propaganda so they can figure out and dig down and find out what they think Jesus was really like. Basically, they, they kick out all the mirror 
end up with is a caricature that Jesus has never had this sensitivity in history or otherwise. Because there is no good thing, there is nothing even remotely historical about a Jesus who lacks loyalty. There never has been any such thing. There never has been any such thing as a Jesus who says wise stuff but does not also walk on water. There never has been any such thing in history as a Jesus who cares about the poor but does not also then take a couple of pieces of bread and fish and use them to feed thousands of them to feed the Gentiles. There never has been any such thing in history as a Jesus who exudes and exemplifies humility but does not at the same time insist that the only possible way you can save your life is to lose it for him. There's never been a Jesus like that. The gospel is nothing at all if it is not the gospel of the glory of Christ. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He's not just a great thinker. He's God in the flesh, the visible image of the invisible God. The gospel we believe, the gospel we preach, the gospel that has saved us and changed us is the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. The gospel that's centered on Jesus, that points people to Jesus and calls them to love and follow and obey Jesus. The gospel that calls for something much more than simply agreeing to a couple of doctrines. It's a gospel that calls for something much more than doing your very best to obey him. It is a gospel that calls you to fall on your face in surrender and worship. It's a gospel of the glory of Jesus. People today want to admire Jesus as a reformer or a moralist or an advocate for the poor. But then they want to stop right there. They want to honor him at some human level while refusing to recognize his glory. They want to tip their hats to someone who's teaching without bowing their knee to him in worship. And as I said, this past Wednesday in the midweek communion service, we read verse 5. Whatever you may think of him, however you may imagine Jesus, a day is coming when you are going to see him in all his glory. And you might just want to pause there for a moment. To this point in incredible wisdom and the beauty and the genius of God in keeping all things working together. The writer of Hebrews can't preclude you from reaching out and gathering together, from emptying yourself in the world to being refilled in the church. He writes, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good works. Let's be faithful. Let's be very bold to step out into the chaos. some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Make no mistake about it. The world needs you and God expects you to step into the mess, to step into the chaos for the love of God and good deeds. To step out into the world to reach the people around you with love and good deeds. But that can take a toll on your heart. And in order to do that well, in order to love people like we're supposed to, in order to to represent Jesus like we're supposed to, you're going to have to consistently draw near to God 